Well, hey there, have you ever uh, had the feeling of seeing your name at like the top of the list? I know your football team in the locally here and, and my favorite teams are not on the top of the list today. But when you see your name as like one of the best things, for instance, the city of Seattle was ranked one of the safest places to live in a natural disaster. which seems odd, right? Volcano, volcano. Fault line, tsunami, which the tsunami doesn't really make sense because we're all up, most of us are up a little bit. But, and I grew up in California, so earthquakes don't really phase me. Uh, Seattle's the, one of the fastest growing uh, cities uh, in, in, in the nation, 1,000 people a week, so we're on top of the list there. Uh, it ranks the fourth healthiest city according to Centrum Vitamins, the ones that... I think they measure that by how many people are taking their vitamins, right? How many they sell here. It's the fifth most playful city. For you guys being so serious, uh, maybe. And then, uh, then there's this. Uh, it, it's fun to see your name on top of the list, but did you know that the United States is also known as the most anxious uh, nation in the world? Yes? Okay. Well, that was news to me. 18% of adults are suffering from anxiety disorders. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, I'll read some of these stats, $300 billion every year goes to medical bills. In 1997 to 2004, Americans doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications from $900 million to $2.1 billion. And that we do the billion dollars. Never mind. <laughs> Austin Powers things. Some of us are shocked by this, right? Like, wow, that's a lot. But many of us, including myself, deal with anxiety almost on a daily basis. So to read this or to hear this is kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Welcome to my world. I've been, ha I've been dealing with anxiety since high school. I remember having the, it runs in my family. My dad had it, his dad probably had it, my sister has it, brothers, me. We all deal with anxiety in our family. It's something, it's an old friend of mine. It's always in my head. Others aren't familiar with anxiety. It's a new thing. You think anxiety and fear are the same. They're not. Anxiety and fear, they're related, but in a way that like second cousins are related. They're just kind of look like each other. And fear says this. Uh, fear says, get out. Anxiety says, uh, what if? Fear pumps your bloodstream with the adrenaline for the fight or flight. So if there's a rattlesnake out in your front yard, you're, you're ready to take it on. Anxiety says, there might be a rattlesnake in my front yard. I'm never going to go outside ever again. Uh, and there might be more than one. It's the what if. The, the anxiety is doom and gloom. But we hear passages like what Kirk read today, and we think that we as Christians, well, we have to be exempt from worry, Right? Why? We can't worry. It's against the Bible. Wrong. Worry and anxiety, uh, we're not immune from it. Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean that we always will be worry-free whenever there's a problem. We feel anxious. If we feel anxious, then we feel guilty. And then we feel anxious about feeling guilty. And then we feel more anxious. 
because we've piled on these misconceptions of what anxiety really is and we miss it. So when Paul says this, be anxious for nothing, I really wish Paul would have said it a bit differently. I wish that Paul would have said, you can be anxious on Tuesdays and every other Wednesday and on Friday night. Those are the times you can be anxious. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't leave much room at all. But that's not what he meant. He didn't say, don't ever worry about a thing. What Paul was talking about here was he's using the present active tense of a word. And he's saying, don't be trapped in a perpetual state of anxiety. Don't let anxiety control you. Anxiety is not a sin. Anxiety is an emotion. Don't feel guilty about feeling anxious. However, anxiety can lead you to sinful habits. Anxiety can make you indulge in all the six packs in your fridge and then make you go get more. Anxiety can lead you to binge eating all the ice cream. Anxiety can lead you to uh, abandoning your commitment walking away from your family, not being true to your word. Anxiety leads to all of these things. And then pretty soon you're trapped in the prison of anxiety. And this is what Paul warns against. His intention in Philippi is to encourage them to have joy. And he wants them to stay out of the prison of anxiety. He wants them to flourish. And he knows how toxic worry is and how it can ruin life. And so he writes in these four verses uh, practical steps for the people of Philippi to steer clear from anxiety. He wants to let them know that peace is is within reach. And so he gives them, and we'll look at them today, three possible steps to get us over anxiety. The first step that he gives us is praise. He says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. If we're looking literary at this, Paul is pulling out all the stops. He says rejoice in the Lord, which, which is the, the, the meaning of continue rejoicing. Uh, kind of like the, when you're walking somewhere and you smell uh, the jasmine flowers or whatever flower, you smell them initially and then the smell lingers. He says continue on rejoicing. Now here's Paul, he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten uh, 39 lashes four times, he's been left for dead, he's been stoned, and now he finds himself in prison awaiting trial in front of a man named Nero, who really loved to kill Christians. And Paul says, in the middle of this, rejoice. Nowhere up until this point has Paul mentioned fear. Nowhere up until this point has he mentioned how he never really wanted to go to Philippi in the first place. No, nowhere does he mention anything that he is full of fear. In fact, when you read the book of Philippians, it's almost as if, as if Paul is sitting on a warm beach somewhere with an umbrella drink. He's happy. He's joyful. The word fear hasn't even crossed his mind. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always as if continue on rejoicing wasn't enough. He says, do it all the time. And then he repeats himself. Again, I say rejoice, as if it wasn't enough. Rejoice. But Paul, how is this possible is the question that I have circled. How do we do this? It's 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 not possible. But that's not what Paul was telling us to do. Paul wasn't telling us to create a feeling or or to constantly be putting on these rose glasses and be happy about something. Paul's telling us to rejoice in something, not just empty joy. 
He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's the song that doesn't end and it goes on and on, my friends. It goes on. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. But when I'm in the throes of my anxiety, I don't want to rejoice in the Lord. Do you? I want to rejoice in something a little bit more certain. I want certainty. But Paul, when, he, when he's rejoicing, he has all these things to be anxious about. Look, Just look through uh, the uh, book of Philippians with me. It'll be on the screen in Philippians 1, 12 through 13. Paul is in the middle of prison. And he says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard, everyone that, and everyone else that I am in chains of Christ. He's in the anxious place for prison, and what's he doing? He's rejoicing. He's glad that Christ's name is being sent out. Uh, the next one, in, in Philippians 1.15, uh, surrounded by enemies. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others preach Christ out of goodwill. People are spreading rumors about him, saying Paul's, been, uh, Paul's a liar, and he, Paul doesn't care. Why? He's rejoicing in Christ. Christ's name is getting out. It doesn't matter. The latter do so out of love, he says in verse 16, knowing that I am put there for the defense of the gospel. His perspective is on Christ. In the anxious place of people spreading rumors. In verse 18, he says, what does it matter in every way, whether their false motives are true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. And then, when the people who were corrupt were always winning, when the bad guys were always getting away with it, Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 9. And he's talking about Jesus. He says, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Je- and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then, when Paul feels like he's abandoned, He says this, for it is God who is working in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. All of these places, Paul is rejoicing in Christ. And I want to rejoice in certainty. I want things to be concrete, don't you? I don't want any kind of uneasiness in my life. But that's not a reality. The more you look at it, the more I look at it, certainty is a false God. We can wish for something to be certain, but certainty is never given to us. Nothing is certain. When I'm in the throes of my anxiety, I want to lock every uncertain thing away, but then reality hits me. And I notice that even in a a recession, a person who has millions and millions of dollars can go broke. A health nut who eats only vegetables, can still get cancer. A hermit who has no contact with anybody in their life can still suffer from insomnia. Your team might be playing the Patriots today. Uncertainty. It doesn't matter how certain you surround your life, there are times that are gonna come and it's going to be uncertain. So Paul says this, rejoice in the Lord. Not in your bank account, not in your job, not in your fill in the blank wherever you find your joy. It says rejoice in the Lord, the one who doesn't change, the only certain place that we have in this world. 
There was a philosopher, his name was Heraclitus, and the, one of the things that he's famous for is he said, you cannot step into the same river once. So you see a river, it is constantly changing. You cannot step into the same river that you stepped into because the river has changed by the time your foot hits the water. The only thing that he said in this world that is certain is that uncertainty is, un, is the only certain thing. Heraclitus didn't know God. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the one who doesn't change. Rejoice in the one whose character is always the same. Rejoice in the one who's always been there. That's where you find your joy. So surrounded by anxious, these anxious times, if you want to find joy, the best place to find it, according to Paul, is to say rejoice in the Lord. And in case we didn't get it, he says rejoice in the Lord always. Your first step, the first P in the outline is rejoice or praise, praise God in the middle of the uncertain times. The second one is, uh, the second step Paul gives us is the presence. Look what Paul says in verse five. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you catch the four words there? Usually we'll read this and we want to jump straight to what we got to do, right? You're anxious. What do we have to do? Paul says, don't be anxious, which is like telling someone not to breathe. Don't breathe. It'll last you about a minute, and then you're going to have to take a breath. Paul says the first, the four words right before the command, the Lord is near. That's the reminder. That's the part in the passage we usually skip, the four words that change the world. The Lord is near. Moses is in the wilderness in Exodus, and he doubts that God is even nearby. And the first things that God says to Moses is, I have seen, I have heard, and I'm on my way. God was near. Jacob is spending the night in the wilderness in a place called Horeb, and he wakes up in the morning, and he says, God was in this place. God was near. The presence of God is a prescription against our anxiety, realizing that the Lord is near. Your anxiety, my anxiety, makes me feel that God is not. Makes me feel that I'm alone. I convince myself that I'm not going to make it. I'm trapped in a terrible place where I'm solo in this. This is what anxiety does to you. Isolated. You're isolated in your thoughts. Your mind is divided. You're, all the what-if questions are happening. And so we read this verse and it says, don't be anxious. But we forget the why we shouldn't be anxious because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious. We get a peek into the mind of Paul here. His innermost being believed that God would live up to his promise that he will never leave him, that he would never forsake him. He's preserved under the shadow of God's protective wing. God did not leave him. The Lord was near. The peace that Paul talks about is the presence of God stabilizing his world when everything around him told him to be anxious. Paul says, the Lord is near. You have nothing to fear in this place. God is near. And then if you back up a little bit more, let your gentleness be evident to all. 
The Greek word that's there for gentleness describes a temperament that is seasoned and mature. The definition straight out of the, the dictionary says it envisions an attitude that is fitting to the occasion. It's level-headed and tempered. It's gentle reaction of steadiness and fairness. It, it looks humanely and responsibly at the facts of the case. It is the opposite of overreaction and a sense of panic. Let your gentleness be known to all. In the throes of anxiety, what usually happens? Your temper gets about that short. And you snap and you panic and it's chaos. Paul says, gentleness. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be known to all that the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near, there's no need to panic. It's a calmness that comes from the fact knowing that God is by you and you're never alone. This is something that's repeated over and over in scripture. It's almost like God knew that we would forget. It's almost like he knew that we would think that we're abandoned. So look in Genesis 15. God says this to Abraham. God said, don't be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In Genesis 21, uh, it should be on the screen. I'm sorry I'm going fast, Craig. Uh, in Genesis 21, it says to H- God says to Hagar, don't be afraid, God has heard you. In Genesis 26, 24, when Isaac had his land stolen from him from the Philistines, God says to his, do not be afraid, for I am with you. In Joshua 1, 9, Moses had died. The whole camp is filled with uncertainty. And he says this to Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It doesn't matter what happens. Those are just real quick examples. All through the scripture, it's a promise that is repeated and repeated. He was with David in the throes of adultery and being an accessory to murder. Didn't leave David. He was with Daniel when he was faced with the lions. He was with Elijah when Elijah lost all of his faith. He was with Jacob when Jacob was defining his life by lies and living as if he was somebody else. The promise that we get in scripture is that God is near. What's one of the names of Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. It's almost that we needed a reminder with that too. Over and over, what we see in scripture is that God is near. And when our anxiety causes harshness, when, we, when our gentleness is a distant memory, perhaps we need that reminder a little bit more. God is near. God is close. Because the Lord is near, we can be gentle. Because the Lord is near, we can take a breath before we react. Because the Lord is near, do we need to panic? In my anxiety, the thing that I have to say over and over and over is God is close. God is close. Because the Lord is near, we don't have to worry. There's a story in Exodus that, uh, if you've been here longer, everything goes back to Exodus, I'm sorry, but it's true. Uh, In Exodus, the people of Israel are leaving uh, Egypt. Pharaoh is hot on their trail. He changed his mind, he's going to get them. So they're, they're trapped in this place by the Red Sea. To their side is the ocean. Back here is Pharaoh's army and all of his chariots. They're coming to get them and they're going to kill them all. So what do they do? They panic. 
They say to Moses, Moses, what have you done? Haven't, didn't we tell you that we didn't want to leave? We were fine. Are there not enough graves in Egypt for us to be buried there? Why have you brought us all the way out to the sea to kill us? Moses, one of my favorite verses, he says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. This is Exodus 14. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see will never be seen again. In verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. A strict interpretation of the Hebrew says this, Yahweh, Yahweh means the God who is closer than your breath. In, in Hebrew, it sounds like a breath. Yahweh will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. I don't know about you, but I need this verse a lot. Uh, it, it's on consideration for being written on my body somewhere. I need this verse when I wake up. I need it before I go to bed. I need it at lunchtime. I need it at the grocery store. I need to recite this verse over and over when I'm watching Judah play on the playground. I need it at the movie times. I need it at dinner time. I need this verse because I need to be reminded that I can stop trying to control everything. I can stop planning. I can stop counting I can stop fearing and I can breathe a little bit. Why? Because I'm not the one who has to fight. Imagine the Israelites that day, trapped between dying and dying. And all they say, all they hear is, God will fight for you. Just hold on to your peace. Just be calm. Psalmist wrote later in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know who is fighting your battle. Now, we're not facing an oncoming army. There, there's, not, there, there's not someone trying to get you. Your deadline won't actually kill you. Uh, it, it, sometimes it might feel like it, but you might be in a place where your family member or your friend needs a cure. There might be some trouble at work. There might be some things uh, making you anxious. Your marriage might need, need some help. There might be difficulty at school. There are going to be times that raise your anxious level quite a bit. And all those are causes for worry. All those make gentleness hard to come by. But in the middle of that is a reminder that when you're stuck between a hard and a harder place, the one who fights for you is God. What's your job? Be still. Hold on to your peace. Let your gentleness be made known to all. And when we don't have the peace, this is when the rest of that passage comes in mind. When we don't have the peace, all we have to do is ask for it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, let your request be known to God. Then the peace of God will come to you. The peace that transcends all understanding, it says. So what do we have to do in, that, in times of anxiety? ask. And when you don't get it right then, ask again. Ask again. Jesus, I need your peace. Jesus, I need your peace. It's like asking for seconds when there's plenty on the dinner table. It's there for you. All you have to do is take it and keep asking and keep asking. It's just fine that you keep asking. Keep asking and it will be given to you. It's perfectly fine to do it. He fights for you. He's brought you this far. He won't abandon you now. 
So we rejoice in the Lord who gives us his presence and his presence gives us our peace. And then there's the last step, and that's when we ponder. Finally, brothers, Paul says in verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. There's a lot of things in this life that we can control or we can't control, right? You can't control where you're born, can't control your parents, can't control how much salt is in the ocean, can't control the weather. We can't control a lot of things. But there's the one thing that we can control. What do you think about? What, does, what do you fill your mind with? A friend of mine was uh, uh, talking one time and he said, we are the air traffic controllers of our brains. There are a lot of things that are like airplanes circling our heads and we give things permission to land and stay there and we give things, I have a bigger landing strip than most, it's a huge head. We give people permission to land and we give people permission to leave. You are in control of what you think about. Paul says this, he says, hey, uh, think, don't think about these, think about good things. Fill your mind with things that are pure and right and noble, admirable, lovely. If you want to have a terrible day, think about terrible things. If you want to feel terrible about yourself and everyone's out to get you, constantly think about how you're the victim. You are in control of your own brain. You can control your thoughts. Don't beat yourself up about your regrets. Don't constantly re rehearse every mistake that you've made. Is it pure? Is it noble? Is it right? No. Think about the things that are. So here's what I had to do. I had to turn off the news. Watch the news this week. Is it pure? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it admirable? None of it is. But what was filling my brain? A bombing here, a nuclear threat there. I feel sorry for all those people that were in Hawaii a couple weeks ago. Uh, it, it, all of these threats happening, every, uh, a memo's released and everyone flies off the hinge. There are everything happening. So what's the best thing that I can do for my brain? Mute. Put on Paw Patrol for Judah and watch, because they always solve everything. I can control what goes in my head. So maybe it's turning off NPR. Maybe it's turning on worship music. Maybe it's silence. Maybe it's not listening to the podcast as you're walking. Maybe it's walking in the quiet. Paul knows the key for people. If you want to be trapped in anxiety, then fill your mind with those things that bring you anxiety. If you want to feel like you're abandoned, then fill your mind with the, the thought that Christ has abandoned you. Because all you have to do is watch the news for about three days and you think he has. So we can control what's in our heads. We can control what we think about. The person, Satan, who's out to destroy our lives is a master of lies. And he wants all of the bad things to land in your airport. And he wants them to take, take root. 
He wants you to constantly be thinking about those things and remove your joy from you. So Paul says, fix your mind on what is good. The word fix, the first part of it in Greek is the word logic. So in a way, Paul's saying, think about the logical things here. Has God abandoned you? That's illogical. No, don't think about that. Don't fill your mind with this. He means that our first line of defense is how we think. Dwelling on the good is how is the antidote to our anxiety. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, fill your mind with these things. It's not ignoring the pain. It's not saying that the hard stuff doesn't exist. It's not avoiding those. But what I've found in my anxiety when it grips me If I am constantly dwelling on everything that can go wrong, then everything will always go wrong in my head. That make sense? If the smallest thing happens and I'm already completely over into the world is against me and the smallest thing happens, I fly off the hinge. If I've allowed myself to constantly rehearse everything bad, I get a message from my doctor, I automatically think I'm on my deathbed. But my doctor was just calling to tell me that my prescription's been approved. So I don't get on my deathbed. But I hear the voicemail or I see the number, oh no. If I'm constantly filling my mind with everything is against me, I don't, and I text Carrie and I don't get a response from her immediately, all of a sudden everything has gone wrong at home. Really, she was in the shower and the phone's not waterproof. The reality, think logically about this. I get a small bill that I wasn't expecting and all of a sudden because I've been preparing my life for the worst, I'm now going to be destitute. You see, when you constantly fill your mind with the what if fear, that's how you're going to accomplish everything. But if you fill your mind and you're constantly being reminded that God is with you, doesn't abandon you, when those times come, I'm not saying worry won't happen. I'm saying worry will be manageable and you will not be locked up in its prison. When you start to get serious about this, if you want to conquer your anxiety, beware of what you fill your mind with. Now there might be some times in your anxiety where you need some help. Doctors can prescribe things that help. I take them. There's no shame in taking those pills. Sometimes you need a little help through it. Sometimes you can go through all the steps and still be gripped with anxiety. Sometimes it's a mental thing that we need some help getting over with. But we don't like the fact that we have to take these things sometimes. I'm not saying don't take those. I'm saying that sometimes those things are helpful and needed. But there are other steps to take alongside of those prescriptions and filling your minds with the things that are pure, noble, and right help. Turning off the TV helps. It stops your brain from swirling. It it clears up your airspace. And then I love what Paul says at the end of this. He says, look at the example that I've given. If there's anything that you've heard from me, and then the end of it all, and the peace of God will be with you. It never left you. It's always been there. He says, then you'll be able to find it. Will you worry again? Yes. 
You will have worry sometimes. There's going to be times where the pit of your stomach is just rotten. There's going to be worry times. But will you be controlled by worry? This is what Paul is trying to get us to not be. Don't be controlled by your worry. Don't let it steal your joy. Don't let it crash your plane. Maybe next time, the grips of anxiety won't be so tight on you. Because in all of this, and there's one point that's left out of, scripture, of your outline, we are granted the person of Christ with us at all times. Never leaves you, never forsakes you. So we praise, we have the presence, we ponder what is right, and in all of that, we know that the person of Christ is with us.